is anybody ever fear, feel uh, weary? Yeah. Um, my wife and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago during the election season and all that stuff. And we were just saying we had a sense that as a nation, and I don't know if you guys sense this, maybe it was just us, we just sense that as a nation we're kind of in a season of national weariness. Like as a nation we're tired and we're kind of worn out and, and uh, you know, the war and the economy and issues and the uh, politics and the elections. And, and I just feel like nationally we're, we're weary. And some of us are weary because of things going on in our personal lives, parenting issues. Maybe you have small children and they wear you out. Maybe you have grown-up children and dealing with issues that are breaking your heart. Um, maybe you have a marriage that's been struggling for quite some time. Maybe you had some bad health situations come up in this last year. Maybe, maybe finances, maybe you're in a business, a line of work that's dealing uh, maybe more so than others with the current economic situation. Maybe you've just had stuff come up in your personal life, you know, refrigerators break down and kids need braces and it's just been one of those years and and for some of us we're just going to be we're just going to be easy eager to push this year behind us we're weary and then for others of us maybe we're weary spiritually um this is something that nobody really talks about and and nobody told me this when I became a Christian and and part of me wishes somebody would have at the same time I kind of think well maybe I wouldn't have done it if somebody had told me this but the reality is and you talk to people who've been Christians for any length for for a length of time for a season and you'll find out that most people who have been Christians for a while, you kind of get, you have those seasons where you're just weary of being a Christian. And, and I know that's going to sound heretical to some of you, but it's kind of like those of you who are married, and even if you've been married for quite a while, and even if you would say, I have a quote-unquote good marriage, everybody who's been married for a while has those moments where they look back and they think, you know, there were some times where I thought, I'm just tired of being married. I mean, it's just a lot of work, a lot of energy. Any relationship like that takes work, and same with God. And there are seasons where we're just tired of following God. That we, we kind of like maybe a break, you know, like, God, you go into your room for the weekend. I'm going to go to mine. We're just going to kind of take some space. And I'm going to take a week off, a month off, a year off. We're just going to, we're going to separate for a little while. Because God, I've been trying to be faithful, and there's just no, there's just no payoff. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've been trying to be faithful financially. You know, you, you, you've learned about God's view of our finances and it's a tool. You're trying to think about how can I use it to expand the kingdom and I'm tithing and doing all that kind of stuff. But things are getting tighter and tighter and you're like, God, is there any payoff here? I mean, I thought this was going to make it better. Maybe you're single and you think, I'm just going I'm, I'm to do the dating thing the right way. I'm going to date the right kind of girl, the right kind of guy. I'm going to have the right kind of moral boundaries and integrity in my relationship. And yet you can't seem to find the right kind of person. And you think, you know, I'd like to find a, a guy or a gal, you know, who's got the, the right vision for life and a value system and a, and a belief in God and a passion for him. And, you know, a cool car wouldn't hurt and a nice job would be a good thing. And maybe, if, maybe he was a little hunky, that'd be good too. And you meet people out there that have the cool car and the good job and they're kind of hunky. And you think to yourself, well, you know, their value system's totally a mess and they don't follow God at all. But, you know, they could become a Christian, you know. <laughs> so um, you just get weary of doing good. Maybe, maybe you're in a marriage and... You've had a tough year, you've had difficult, a difficult season and there's a part of you that says I'm going to hang in there and try to do the right thing and make this thing work and you've got friends that have bailed on their marriages for a lot less and you're in a difficult season and it just keeps getting worse and worse and you think, God, where's the payoff here? I thought, I thought if I did the way you wanted me to do it, there'd be a payoff. Maybe you're in a line of business where you think, I think I'm the only person in my whole company that tries to do their job with integrity to try to tell the truth I'm missing deals. I get kind of 
I'm have to be on my own alone on business trips because I don't you know, do the things that people do. I, I'm just weary. And it's not that you don't believe. You still believe. You're just weary. And you have friends that go to some churches, you know, and they kind of go in and do their religious thing and go home, but it doesn't seem to affect them. They kind of do whatever they want. And you think, I, maybe I, you know, I, I don't like the pressure sometimes. I feel like I'm trying to do a God's thing, but I'm just weary. Do you know it's okay to be weary? It's okay to be weary nationally. It's okay to be weary personally. It's okay to be weary spiritually. I want to show you half of a verse uh, just out of the book of Galatians, something the Apostle Paul says. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. One of the reasons I like that verse is because the implication is that you will become weary. You'll become weary in your financial world. You'll become weary of trying to do the right thing. You'll get weary in your singleness. you get weary as a parent. you get weary in marriage. I mean, let's just be honest. Those of us who are married, there are those moments, you know, ladies, where we're at home and we hear the garage door open and we just think to ourselves, you know, the ogres here, you know, I mean, just, uh, or, or vice versa, you know, guys, there's those moments where we leave work and we think, do I have any errands to run anywhere? Maybe like in Louisiana or something, uh, just, I mean, just, just be, tell the truth. I mean, there was moments we just get weary. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't, we're going to put this on the screen. Isaiah is kind of right in the middle of your Bible. While you're looking there, because it may take you well, I'm going to eat a cough drop because all three of my kids are hacking and coughing and sniffling and have sore throats, and they've turned our home into a giant bacteria frap, and now I have it. So um, Isaiah is a big, long book. Uh, it's interesting. I- Isaiah contains most of the messianic, uh, many of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. This is why this is relevant for Christmas. In the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds of verses that point forward to the coming of the Messiah. They're called Messianic prophecies. They talk about the coming of Jesus. One of the most famous ones in the book of Isaiah has been made into a song. Uh, some of you know this song from Christmas time, uh, Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And wonderful counselor. You know that song, some of you? Okay. Well, um, th- that comes from Isaiah. It's a, it's a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Well, what, what is not known sometimes about Isaiah is Isaiah was written during a time of Israel's history that was very hard. And the people of Israel were weary. They were weary nationally. They were weary in their personal lives. They were, they were really tired of following God. And they were trying to do the right thing, and yet they had seen no payoff in their personal life. And it's not that they, just, they didn't believe. They were just weary. And i got to be honest with you, I love the fact that God addresses their weariness. Because for me, it normalizes it. You know, it says, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a bad person if you're weary. You're not, you don't, you're not like a Christian flunky if you're weary. It's a normal stage of life. And I, I like it because it, it gives us permission not to be one of those kind of saccharine, fake, put on the Christian mask kind of churches and say, we're just all happy and everything's okay in our lives. Because it's just not the truth. See, God's response to our weariness, even our weariness of following him, of doing good, may surprise you. And I'll just speak for myself. For me personally, as I reflected on this uh, uh, for uh, you know, quite a bit, obviously, during the week as I prepared to talk about it, there was something in this that connected deep with me because, frankly, I'm weary. You know, I was thinking this week I've been a senior pastor for nine years in ministry for 13 years. That's quite a, a, quite a run to a degree. We've re- relocated. We've dealt with the growth and other things that have happened. 
we've dealt with economics. We're dealing with the economic realities like everybody else is. Last spring, we had a staff person leave, and due to the economic situation we're facing, we haven't replaced that staff, so I'm kind of doing both jobs right now. And there's a way, in a way, I'm weary. And I have mar- marital ups and downs like everybody does, and financial pressures like everybody does, you know, cars and braces and those kinds of things. And I have three kids that will suck every bit of life out of me that I allow them to. And so as I reflected on this passage this week, you know, there's a part of it, it really spoke to me. And I'm probably not the only one. Let me tell you a little bit about the context before we jump into the passage. This is, uh, the Old Testament is the story of Israel. You guys know this is probably the high points at least. They were slaves in Egypt. They come out of Egypt. You know, Moses led them through the Red Sea and you, you saw the movie. And then Joshua and uh, he leads the conquering of the promised land. And then Judges is a season where they kind of divide up the land and settle in their, according to their tribes. But that whole time there was no king in Israel. They had prophets, they had priests, they had spiritual leaders, but no political leader. And then finally God raises up a political leader named Saul. And then he hands the baton to a guy named David. Some of you know David and Goliath and Bathsheba, those stories. Who then has a son. And he and David united the whole kingdom and really built it up into a power. And then handed the baton to his son Solomon. And Solomon reigned over what's referred to as the golden age of Israel. Economic prosperity, peace, military power. They were a major player in the ancient world during, during Solomon's reign. And then... Like happens in a lot of affluent families where the dad's work works too much and the kids have too much money and are spoiled. Solomon's son was an idiot. And uh, as a result, the kingdom split. And I want to show you a map uh, just, just so you kind of get a picture. This is a real place in real time. The kingdom split into two, two pieces. Israel was in the north with the capital city of Samaria. And Judah was in the south with the capital city of Jerusalem. And those were other little tribal groups that lived around them. And Israel... The northern kingdom had a succession of bad kings. Every single one of them was bad. They abandoned God's law. They, they, they didn't go to the temple anymore. They built a new temple in Samaria. They abandoned God's covenants. They built foreign idols. They, uh, al- they made alliances and treaties with foreign countries they weren't supposed to, according to God's ways. Uh, and so they were just all bad. The southern kingdom had kind of a mixture of good and bad. Now, Isaiah is written around 735 B.C. And during this time, the king of Israel has made an alliance with the king of Aram. And um, he said, what they've said is, let's go against the Assyrians. We have another map here. The Assyrian Empire was like the major player, the major power of the time. And you can see they controlled everything in that other map. You can see where Jerusalem is and Israel. It contains that little small spot over there. But you can see that they controlled most of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, all the way into Turkey. Um, The headquarters of Assyria was Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq. You can see they controlled part of Iran. Uh, Jordan and modern Jordan and Syria. I mean, they, it was a huge space. There's another map to show you as, as the kingdom of Assyria expanded. And this is right in the sweet spot of the Assyrians' rule, 735 uh, uh, BC. So the king of Aram and the king of Israel said, We're going to stand against um, Assyria. They were the world power. They were expanding. They were fearless. They were f- uh, ferocious. They had a very modern government, a very modern uh, economy. They were hated. The Assyrians were hated, but they were obeyed because they were big. And they were ruthless. In fact, some of their ruthlessness is still very well known in our, in our world today. Um, they, what they would basically do when they would invade a country is they would go to the cities, they would send messengers, and they'd say, here's your options. You can either, uh, you can either uh, surrender to us, and in, in which case we'll let your children and the women live. They will they'll become our slaves. The men are going to die. Or you can try to fight us, in which case you'll lose, and then everybody dies, and not in a pretty way. And what they would do 
and this is, again, historically verified, they would, when they would uh, destroy a city, they would go through and they would impale everybody alive. It was kind of a precursor to, to crucifixion. So literally tens of thousands of men, women, children would be impaled, impaled alive. As a message to the next city they would go and visit, this is what's going to happen if you don't just surrender. So these two kings of Israel and Aram, they decided to take a stand against Assyria, which was dumb. Uh, and they send a message to the king of Judah, a guy named Ahaz, who was in his early 20s. And they send the message to Jerusalem, and they say, join us as we stand against Assyria. Now, Ahaz was a bad king. His grandfather was a good king. His father was a great king, but Ahaz was a mess. He was so bad, in fact, that when he died, the Israelites wouldn't even bury him in the royal cemetery. They buried him outside the city of Jerusalem in, alone in kind of an area that was like a garbage dump area. So, I mean, he was a bad political leader, and I know we have a hard time understanding bad political leaders, but that's the world they lived in. So... But, I mean, he was bad. He sacrificed his own children on the uh, fire to the god Moloch. He cleansed, closed up the temple. He set up uh, altars to pagan gods. And God's message, um, he, he gets this message from these two other kings, um, Aram and Israel. And they say, join us against Assyria. And he knows it's a bad idea that no matter even if all three of them stand together, it's not gonna, they're, not, they're all going to get destroyed. But he's concerned that if he says no to them, because of the political kind of culture in that, in that world, that he will offend these kings, and then they'll come after him. So he thinks, what do I do? And then meanwhile, all in, in Judah, all these people are weary. They're trying to follow God. They're trying to follow his ways, but they have a bad king who's made alliances he shouldn't have made. He's closed the temple. He's got these false idols. The culture is moving away from God. The economy is bad. There's a threat of war with Assyria and their neighbors to the north. And they're being good and they're being faithful and they're trying to follow God and it's getting harder and harder and harder to do the right thing. And life is getting harder and harder and harder. And they're wondering, is there any payoff for trying to follow God? They're weary. See, before when this kind of thing would happen, the king would go before God, he'd go to the temple and he'd, he'd humble himself and say, God, tell us what to do. And God would come through, through for them as a nation. But now they know that's not going to happen. Through no fault of their own, they've got this king. And life is just getting harder and harder and could even get worse in the very near future. So they think, what's the point of following God against the flow of the ever-increasing, you know, ungodly culture? They're weary. Meanwhile, Ahaz, this young king, is trying to make up his mind. Do I ally with these guys, become allies, and go to war against Assyria, which would be dumb? Or do I make them mad? And while he's stalling and trying to figure out what he's going to do, the Aramean army takes his silence as a no. And they start raiding some of the Judean villages are on the southern edge of Judah along where Philistia is. And the king hears that, and he also hears that the armies of Israel have decided to march on Jerusalem. So he thinks, what do I do? In the midst of all this chaos, God sends a prophet named Isaiah to speak to the king and speak to the people. And the message is a message to all men and women who are weary, who are weary nationally, who are weary personally, and who are weary spiritually. So Isaiah chapter 4, and this is a long section. I'm going to kind of move through it quickly and just highlight some things. But I referenced it in your inserts. You could go away this week and go back and spend more time in it. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service, her faithfulness, has been completed. That her sin has been paid, uh, paid for and that she has received for the Lord's hand double for her sins. In other words... God says, I see you've been faithful. You're not being punished for something you did wrong. I see your faithfulness. You're just going through a hard season. Verse 3. 
A voice of one calling. Now here's the first of the sections of Messianic prophecies that are in this section of Isaiah. Again, this is, they understood this to be pointing ahead to, G, to Jesus. Actually, this one references John the Baptist. But at the time, they didn't know that. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. And the rough ground should be become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Remember in the Christmas story, the angels come and it says the glory of the Lord shone around, around about them. It's a reference again ahead. And all mankind together will see it. And again, who's the most famous person that's ever lived um, in, in human history? That would be Jesus. So it's again pointing forward. But remember, this is 735 years before Jesus came. So this was not seen as a messianic prophecy at the time. They were just in a hard time. And so the writer of Isaiah was saying, look, I know it looks like to you that God is inactive and that he's forgotten his promise and that God does not see and is not working what's going on in your life. But you just wait. God sees and he is working. So prepare yourself. See, the people of Israel do exactly what you and I do. We think, woe is me, our government is a mess and our nation's a mess and our economy's a mess and we're at war and my personal finances are a mess and my marriage stinks and my, you know, my kids are doing all kinds of things. And we just get focused on what's going on immediately around us and God says, I understand that, but let's take a time out for a second. Before you decide to kind of walk away from me and walk away from my ways in your life because of circumstances around you, let me ask you a couple questions. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? In other words, who is so big and so mighty that they control the waters? That, that space is like nothing to them, that they can put the earth in their backpack. I mean, who's that big? Is the king of Judah that big? King of Aram? The king of Assyria even? Mighty Assyria? Verse 13. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as a counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Again, he says, look, before you decide you're going to walk away from me and walk away from my ways because you're tired or because you think things should be going differently than they are for you, let's remember who you're dealing with. This is God. This is God who all that is, is because of him. I mean, this is God who doesn't need anybody to teach him anything. God, God knows everything there is to know. He doesn't need to be enlightened, which is, I'm glad he used that word, enlightened, because it's an important reminder to me, because I don't know about you, but I like to enlighten God. You know, God, I don't know if you're paying attention here, but uh, God, I, I've been trying to be faithful, you know, with my finances, and you're not, like, showing up the way I thought you were going to. God, you know, I, I don't know if you're paying attention at all, but I'm being faithful in my marriage and not walking away, even though all my friends have walked away, and this isn't getting any better. God, I, I, I'll only enlighten you a little bit about my kids. I pray every day, and they're making bad decisions. What, what's up with that? God, I, I, I've tried to honor you in my work, and my career has stalled. Let me enlighten you, God. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. But are you really paying attention? Verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. All those nations, Assyria, Aram, Israel, those nations that you're worried about, the kings that you're worried about. Let's just step back and think, compared to them, you know, let's think about God. This is the God of history. Are you really going to abandon God in his ways because of a set of circumstances that aren't what you thought they should be? Or because of a stage of your life that's difficult? I mean, yes, your marriage, your finances, your kids, that's a big deal to you. I understand that. But is it as big as me, God says? 
Are you willing to abandon me in my ways because of something that, yes, it's big to you, but compared to me, it's pretty small? Verse 17. Before him all the nations are nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? He says, I know the Assyrians are, are really scary, but compared to God, they're, they're not much. I, I, I know this is a, a frightening, I know the economy is a mess, I know you don't have the leadership you think you should have, I know you're weary, but in light of who I am, let's just step back and think about things for a second. Verse 21, do you not know, have you not heard, has it not been told to you from the beginning, have you not understood since the earth was founded? Again, have you not heard the stories? Let's pause, put, a, put the pause button for a second. Think about the stories you've heard before about Moses and Abraham and Joseph, people who were in difficult situations, and yet I showed up for them. Remember those stories? Verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. If only Columbus had seen this passage several hundred years ago, he'd know the earth wasn't flat. It was circular. Just an observation. Uh, he, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Mrs. Judy, you're afraid of Assyria and Israel and Aram, it's, it's like the stuff that we're afraid of. I mean, it seems big to us, but it's nothing to God. It's like a grasshopper. You're walking around in the weeds and a grasshopper jumps on your arm, you just flick it off. I mean, it's not a big deal. And he's not trying to be mean. He's just saying, get some perspective, get the big picture. Don't make a terrible decision based on a set of circumstances or a stage of life that's hard now, but it's small in comparison to God. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Remember the, the, those princes and rulers of the world? Remember mighty Egypt, the, the power of the world several hundred years ago? They were the power of the world and you were their slaves and yet you plundered them and their army was destroyed and their leader Pharaoh was destroyed and you didn't have to lift a finger. God did it. Remember Joshua when he marched the people of Israel into the promised land? You, you faced these mighty fortified cities, these Canaanite cities with walls and armies like Jericho. You didn't have to do anything and, and you conquered them. Remember those things? Verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. In other words, just step back. Just step back and look around. I know you're tired. I know you're tired because your marriage, your finances, your kids, but just step back and look up. At the vastness of the universe, God says, those things are small to me. They're big to you, but they're small to me. And he says, your issues, those things you're facing that are causing your weariness, I know they're big to you, but they're small to me. And I see them, and I know them, and even though you don't see activity, there is activity. So don't walk away from me and my ways just because you're tired. He says, who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? I love this. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. In other words, he's saying that exactly what you and I say sometimes, which is, God, I know you're big. I know you're vast, and the universe and the stars and the planets and nations and kings. I understand all that stuff, and that's exactly my point. I don't think you really care about the little things that are going on in my life. I don't think you really care of all that vastness, like the tension in my marriage or the financial pressures I'm dealing with or my kids. I just think that stuff's hidden from you. It's just disregarded. My social life, my business life, I just don't think you care. Those are small potatoes compared to the world you're, you're dealing with. And Isaiah says, no, 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 no. Don't walk away from God because that stuff isn't hidden. He sees it. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. 
Again, he's saying, I know life doesn't always make sense and you have questions and doubts and you wish you had more answers than you have, but if he is God, shouldn't there be some mystery? I mean, should you have it all figured out? That wouldn't make any sense if you could figure it all out. And then now the promise begins. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. That means when you're weary, you know, maritally, financially, with your family, when you're weary, job, nationally, when you're tired of doing life God's way, when you're tired of being faithful, when you're no payoff, when you're weary, you can ask God for strength, and he is happy to give it to you. Part of the implication of this, again, is that weariness is normal. And weariness is not the time to bail on God and his ways. It's a time to turn instead for him to, to him for extra strength. See, if you're here and you're weary, you can go to God in your weariness, and he's not going to slap you and say, what's wrong with you? You should be stronger. He's not going to kind of flick you aside, say, I got bigger fish to fry, bigger issues to deal with. God says, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> and you know what I do when you're weary? I give you strength. Verse 30. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, and that's the most important word in this whole passage, let me get to that in a minute. Hope in the Lord will renew their strength. That word hope is a really cool Hebrew word. It's a, it's a totally loaded word. Some translations actually translate it wait, those who wait on the Lord. But it's a kind of a combination of both. And the idea is, and this is going to sound strange, but the implication is it's like a thief or a robber that's hiding on the side of the road, kind of in the crags of the rocks, waiting to pounce on a passerby to rob them. I mean, take the morality of robbing somebody out of it. It's an eager, participatory, leaning forward, uh, wait, uh, kind of hopefully waiting in, you know, in an anticipatory, uh, passionate way. It's not a despairing kind of hope. I was thinking, it's kind of like my kids on Christmas Eve. We don't open presents on Christmas Eve. We open presents on, on Christmas Day. And so, you know, Christmas Eve comes and the tree's got all the stuff from grandpa and grandma and, you know, moms and dads and all this just piled up, uncles and aunts. And just, you know, my kids know in just a few short hours, we're going to actually finally get to the stuff we've been staring at for, you know, several weeks. And so on Christmas Eve, they're like, they hum. They're like, their whole, they, to try to get them to go to sleep and calm down, it's, it's virtually impossible. That's the kind of hopeful expectancy we're talking about. That this is not necessarily easy and fun, and yes, there's mystery, and we don't always understand it. But, but Isaiah is saying there's like, like something about to happen, and you need to be ready for it when it does. And if you maintain this kind of hope, this, this expectant, waiting, passionate, leaning forward kind of hope in God, even when you're tired and weary and it doesn't look like God is paying any attention, if you're hopeful and expectant during that, time, during that season, God will show up. And in the meantime, he'll give you strength. And the promise continues. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That word will, they will renew their strength, they will soar, they will run, they will walk. It's a, there's a, it's a strong word, it's a promise word. And here's what God is saying through Isaiah. In your weariness, and we all get weary. We get weary nationally, we get married personally, we get, married, we get weary spiritually. We wonder, is there any payoff at all for trying to honor God in my marriage or my career or my finances? We get weary. That's just a part of life. And when you get weary... Isaiah says, don't walk away from God and his ways. Just because everything's not happening the way it should, just because ha things aren't happening as quickly as you think they should be. God says, don't lose faith and walk away from me in times of your weariness. See, your weariness is not a reflection on God, that somehow he lacks strength and power or doesn't see. 
nor is your weariness a reflection that there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. Sometimes you just get weary. We need to just push back from our circumstances for a second and get some perspective on who we are and who God is. And understand and say, God, if you can make the universe, if you can wield power over nations and kings, then surely I can hope, I can lean into, I can trust in you, I can wait expectantly on you and your faithfulness with an anticipatory hopefulness. To the degree that we hope in God like that, you will find strength in your weariness. And see, adults, we know this. Most of us have had seasons or circumstances that at least in a part of our life, if not our whole life, we've thought, you know what, God? You told me to do this in my relationship. You told me to do this in my dating. You told me to do this in my finances. And it's just not working, so forget it. I'm going to do it my way. And we abandon God in his ways, at least in a part of our life. I mean, that's many of us, our story. We grew up in church, but we got weary. We got tired of all the religious stuff and the rules, and we didn't make sense. And didn't, you know, we, we just said, I'm going to do life on my own. And now we're back. But we're back with some baggage and with some scars. God says, you don't win when you walk away from me. You only win when you lean, lean even harder into me in hopefulness. And you say, God, I'm tired, and I need your strength. My hope is in you. And God says, when you do that, you will find the strength you're looking for. And in time, I will show up. See, the principle behind this whole passage is, is simple. It's hard, but it's simple. Trust God every day, regardless of what you see, hear, or feel. And if you do, God will strengthen you when you're weary. God says, trust me when there's no evidence of my, my presence or activity. I want you to be faithful to me in spite of Aram, in spite of Assyria, in spite of Israel, in spite of the fact that you don't have good leadership, Israel, uh, Judah. And if you remain faithful, I will strengthen you in your weariness. And God says to us, be faithful to me. In spite of the economy, in spite of the fact that we're at war, in spite of your social life, in spite of your husband or your wife or your boss, and in your weariness, I will strengthen you. And here's what happens. This is so powerful. As a result, God is most honored, he's most glorified when we live as if he's present and active when there's no evidence of his presence or activity around us. God is most honored by your faithfulness in spite of your weariness and weakness it's like God is saying, I see your faith with your finances. I, I see it. I see that you're trying to tithe and be sacrificial and generous, even though you've watched your retirement fund get cut in half, even though the market's down, even though you're not going to get a bonus or a raise this year. I see that you're still faithful regardless of the circumstances. God, I see that, or he, God says to us, I see you're still faithful in that marriage when everybody around you is bailed and everybody around you tells you to bail. And it's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse, and yet you're faithful. God says, I see that you're faithful in your singleness. Even though you haven't had a date in a while, I see that. I see that there's faithfulness in you when there's no evidence that I see or even that I care or I'm doing anything. And so God says, I'll pour out my strength on you because of your faithfulness. And he says to Israel and to you and to me, trust me. I am present, I am active. I will give you strength that you need in your weariness if you will hope in me if you'll lean hard into me, if you wait expectantly on me. And maybe for some of us, we just need to get up every morning between now and the end of the year. And before we do anything, we open our Bible to Isaiah 40 and read it out loud and let the words wash over us and make some notes and pray along the way and decide, 
I am not going to abandon God or his ways in any area of, of my life because I'm weary. It's interesting, 735 years later, a guy named Paul writes this in Galatians. I showed you the first half of the verse. Here's the rest of it. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, God is at work. Some people, uh, I've heard people say, it's like we look at the second hand in life and God's looking at the calendar of life. But God makes this promise both in the Old and the New Testaments that if, within our weariness, we will hope in him, that he will provide strength to the weary. And in due time, and it's rarely on our time table, but in due time, there will be a payoff. payoff. But in the meantime, he'll give us strength if we lean hard into him. See, that's the message of Christmas. That's what Isaiah is beginning to talk about. You know, it's going to be 735 years until the Messiah comes. But the message of Isaiah and the message of Christmas is it's about hope. And this is written 735 years before Jesus, but eventually a guy will come and he'll say these words in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we close this message, I want to do something a little different, kind of in preparation for communion and things. Some of you that are here this morning, um, that if you're honest, you'd say, like me, you'd say, I'm weary. I'm weary financially. I'm weary. I'm tired every month of just wondering, am I going to be able to make it? I'm weary relationally. I'm weary in my marriage. I'm weary in my singleness. I'm weary with my kids. I'm weary in doing good. I'm weary of trying to follow God and do the right thing and seeing no payoff at all. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something that's maybe a little uncomfortable. But if you are weary, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand in a minute. And don't panic, I'm not going to call on anybody. But if you're weary, I'm just going to say, would you identify yourself? And if somebody around you if, you, if you're sitting here and you see some hands go up around you, I'm going to ask if you would just please lean over to them and put your hand on their shoulder. And if there's somebody sitting alone, that you'd maybe walk to where they are. And in doing this, you'll say, you know what, I've been there. You're not alone. You're not here a bunch of, around a bunch of happy Christians who put on a fake face and everything's okay in our world because everything's not okay all the time. You're not the only one who's weary. Weariness is common to all. So I'm gonna, in a moment, ask those of you who are weary to raise your hand and if you see a hand go up near you, I'm just gonna ask that you would lean over and put your hand on them and pray for them that they would receive that strength that Isaiah promises God will give. And if you're like me and you think to yourself, you know, and I'm not really a hand-raising kind of guy, I'm going to invite you to just take a risk. I mean, what's it going to hurt? See, sometimes when we, when we do something tangible, it, it cements a truth of God in our soul. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. Part of the reason we do communion, part of the reason God instituted communion is because I, God understood we, when we do something tangible, it cements his truth in us. Je, Jesus said, I, I want you to do this when you come together to remember my death my blood that was shed for you. And so when we take the bread and we take the juice, it's a reminder, it's a tangible, it, it's, it, it cements truth in our soul by doing something tangible. And so if you're weary, I'm just gonna ask that you take a risk and you would let us pray for you. So if you're here this morning and you're weary, would you just raise your hand? Thank you for having the courage to do that. If you're, keep your hands up and if you're sitting next to somebody whose hand is up, would you just lean over and put your hand 
on their shoulder and I'm gonna lead us in a time of prayer. Try not to be, let anybody be alone in this. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of us here who are weary. It's a time of year that we get weary and with the national situation we're in and the economy and the war, we're just probably a lot of us are more weary even than normal. And the economic realities we face are, are a burden to many of us. And we've had a difficult year health-wise. And maybe some of us have had marriage challenges. And some of us are, have just been driven to the mat by ki- issues with our kids. We're weary. And we're weary of doing good. We're weary of trying to honor you and follow you, even though we don't see any payoff. And we wonder, why in the world am I doing all this? Why am I wor- in the world am I swimming against the current of our culture when it just doesn't seem to make my life any better. I mean, if, if we're honest, we just say, I'm not sure this Christian thing has worked out the way I should, the way I thought it should. We're weary. God, as we come before you, I, I'm just so grateful that some people were willing to just come out of hiding and come out of the, the shadows and, and just identify in, in and among the group this morning and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm weary, I'm tired. I'm grateful for their honesty. There's probably some people here who are even too weary to raise their hand. And God, I'm grateful that the body of Christ can be the body of Christ and others can come alongside them and put their hand on their shoulder and say, you are not alone. We've all been weary. We've all been there. And this is not some kind of church where we just fake it. We go through the motions, pretend like everything's okay. That's just not the reality of life. Then we can put a hand on a shoulder and say, you're loved and you're cared for. And we could pray for the strength that you promise through your word in Isaiah and in Galatians, that that strength in the midst of our weariness would come upon us. God, give us the courage to trust, to to wait expectantly and hopefully in you, as Isaiah says, to lean forward into you, to not, not back away from you when times are hard, but to lean forward into you to trust you even though we don't see you active and it doesn't seem like you show up or you know or you even care that you do care and you are active in ways we don't understand. And that in due time, as as Paul said in Galatians, and I don't like that phrase due time because I always wish it was on my time, but in due time that you will show up in profound ways. And in the meantime, if we lean hard in you and wait wait hopefully and expectantly on that time where you will show up that in the meantime you give us strength to endure so God we thank you for your grace and your love and for being able to tangibly this morning experience what it means to be in the body of Christ and have somebody literally touch us and say "You're, you're not alone you're loved and you're cared for in this place in Jesus name we pray amen